This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The decision by the instructors, librarians, support staff, whatever else at the college is not to go back to work. So the college strike continues. The kids, and they are kids. I mean, yeah, they're adults. But by and large, most of them are kids. They're just out of high school. They're trying to get on with their education. They're trying to do stuff. Once again, they are the pawns. They are the collateral damage. They get screwed over. And I want to read you something that I was sent just before I came in today. I received this. Now, I'm going by a press release. I'm assuming it's correct. If it is correct, if this is correct, and I got it from a reliable source, and if this is correct, this may tell you something about why we are where we are. According to the College Employer Council, that is one of the side in this. That There's OPSU who's fighting for the teachers. The College Employer Council is the other side of this debate, of this dispute. Uh, according to the College Employer Council, OPSU demanded $5,000 per striking faculty member as a return-to-work bonus before they would agree to a deal, which would have roughly added $60 million to a deal. You wonder why the kids are still out of school. There's blame to go on all over the place. There is blame all over the place. But a $5,000 per faculty member as a return-to-work bonus, signing bonus, might help you explain why this doesn't get done. But again, this is th- there, there is blame all over the place in this, and it just drives me nuts that we have people all the time on all sides claiming to be on the side of the angels, claiming to be fighting for the students, claiming to really care for the students who are in college, and there is nothing in their actions in any of their actions, that says that that's true. This is an absolutely shameful display by everybody involved that this thing still can't get settled. And then, then, and and by the way, so confusing today to the kids, to the students. All right, so... I'll give you the actual story in just a second, but throughout most of the day today on the Mohawk Students Association Facebook page... Students are saying, wait a second, uh, on the Mohawk website, it tells me that my dues, my fees for next year, for next semester, you know, starting in January, are due tomorrow. Am I supposed to pay that? And all day it was, yes, you have to pay that. We've been told nothing to the, nothing other than that. Well, now we hear from the school directly, no, those dues will not be due. Those fees will not be due tomorrow, not until this thing is sorted out. Which, thank goodness, because if the teachers aren't being paid and all the fees have been deposited into the bank, where's that money? Where's the money for this semester? We're going to be chatting in a minute with a familiar guest. You heard him on here before, but it's all about the money. But let me get to where we are now, though, because you've got OPSU. And you've got the CEC, and there's blame to go around for both of them. This is a fight among people who clearly couldn't give a rip about the students. Don't, and don't tell me. Don't have someone come forward and say, oh, no, we really care about the students. We're doing this for the students. You are not doing this for the students. 
You are not. This is not. The students are the last consideration in this whole fight. But now you get the NDP because today the liberals tried to bring forward back to work legislation. The NDP, predictably, as you knew they would, stood up and said, no, we're not going to support that. Well, that's so next time the NDP says that they're fighting for the students. Point to that, you know, that you know who they're fighting for and it's not the students. And then the liberals, Kathleen Wynne and her government will come forward and say, well, look, we were fighting for the students. Well, they've pretty much been doing nothing for five weeks here on this thing. And now that she realizes and her government realizes that an election is coming up and it's going to look really bad if a whole bunch of people lose a whole semester, well, we better do something. But the liberals can't decide whose side they actually want to be on. Are we on the the union side? Are we on the student side? They're not standing for anything. And so now they're caught in the middle where they don't really know what they're supposed to do to try and make this thing work. So I'll tell you what the conservatives should be doing right at this point. We've got an election coming up. If I am involved with the conservatives right now, my strategy as of today or tomorrow morning when I get together is to say, you know what we're going to do? We are going to put forward a, an election platform that says, if elected, one of the first things we're going to do is declare all education workers, teachers, professors, everyone else, if you work in the education system, you will be declared an essential service immediately. The right to strike will be gone. You will now have contracts that expire in the summertime. And when those contracts expire, if you cannot reach a settlement by the time that contract is up, you cannot use the kids, elementary students, high school students, middle school students, college students, university students. You cannot use them as pawns. You will have your dis- your disputes resolved by a binding case of arbitration, an arbitrator who will do binding arbitration and will go from there. And the kids will not be affected. If I'm the Tories, the liberals have already said what they're going to do here. The NDP have already said what they're going to do. I am saying I will risk not getting votes from the teachers unions. But I think I can get a lot of other ground from people if I say we are going to prevent future education strikes in this province doesn't mean that teachers aren't going to get a fair shake. It doesn't mean that teachers aren't going to be paid well or have good benefits or good retirement funds. They will. It just means that rather than having strikes seemingly all the time, we're talking about teacher strikes of various levels all the time. Rather than that, it's going to go to an arbitrator and the arbitrator will decide who wins and who loses, just as it is the case in baseball or hockey with free agency and a bunch of other places. And don't see, here's the thing that those in the education system tell us very quickly. And you know what? Rightly so. How important their job is. They are looking after the future of our society. They are teaching the future of our society. They are helping our kids go down the road towards being something. Nobody believes that teachers are not important. So if they are if we're being told how absolutely essential and how absolutely important teachers are, let's just take that final step and declare them an essential service. It is essential that our kids get educated. It is essential that our kids get educated. If you want to see what the difference is in many of the issues in our society compared to places in the developing world, it's the fact that we have a 
comprehensive organized education system. Education is an essential service. Make it so. Remove the right to strike. Still, they can negotiate. They can have arbitration. They can still have very good livings. No one is asking that the teachers be sent back to poverty standards where they're working in a one-room schoolhouse. Back in the days of Little House on the Prairie, no one's saying that. Let's just acknowledge what the teachers tell us all the time at all different levels. They are essential. Good. Let's make them essential. But this strike has... This strike for a lot of people has not hit home as much because it doesn't mean that you have an elementary school student who's got to stay home from school and that means you have to take time off work. That's when they really get you. That's when people really get cranky. But if I'm a a college student who now is going to have to have my semester possibly jammed into less time or carry over to next semester or extend into the summer when I'm supposed to be making my money to be able to pay for college and miss out on some work. I am, I am ticked. I am seriously ticked. And if they're going to tell me that, well, we're not going to extend it into the summer, we can cram it into the time we have. Well, then my point is, well, then why are you ripping me off? If you can teach me everything you need to teach me in half the time, Why am I paying for all that time? Either charge me half and let's do it in half the time so I can do more work or give me more instruction and fill out my course load so I can learn more. Don't tell me that somehow this thing can now be compressed that I can do a full semester in half the time allotted. Now let me bring in my guest because we... Several weeks ago, you will recall, if you're a regular listener to this show, there was a, an online petition that was started asking for the, student, for the schools, for the government, for whoever, to, uh, to provide refunds because the money's not doing anything. The students have paid for a service, and they're not getting that service rendered to them. Therefore, the refunds should be given back. Well, that day, we were joined by Amir Alana, uh, who is back with us now. Amir, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no worries. Uh, you must be thrilled with how today turned out. Well, I mean, thrilled <laughs> is not the word I would use. <laughs> yes, t- my tongue is um, firmly planted in my cheek, don't worry. But yes, it's uh, it's got to be a complete pain to, to those of you who have worked to try and hope that this thing would be resolved to then see this happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, an, I imagine that all parties, the government included, are pretty disappointed that this is what it's come down to. Uh, and we're definitely one of those parties. Has anything happened with your petition as far as you guys pushing for refunds yet? Has anything moved on that at all? Well, um, I mean, there was the announcement by the government last week that some of the savings that the college has, uh, uh, the savings that they've had because of this uh, strike, that it would be turned into a hardship fund for students, which is which is a step. Um, I don't think it's it goes far enough because ultimately our goal is less about, you know, kind of demanding money back uh, and more about making the point that uh, this bargaining process is clearly flawed and, and it hurts students the most. What, do you have any idea, because all, all you students who have put paid your fees and paid your tuition, where is that money now? Because it's not going to the instructors, it's not going to the teachers. So where, where is that money? No, so I believe, and of course this is, I'm not... Uh, well vested in in how a college accounting system works, but 
Uh, I believe it stays with the colleges, uh, basically as a they have reserves and and they they don't kind of empty their bank accounts every year. Uh, they have operating costs and all that stuff. Uh, so it's literally kind of a, a savings on their on their balance sheet at the end of the year. I believe. But it's not their money. Nope. Like this is what I don't understand. Is yeah, you can yeah. say I've got it saved up in my bank account, but in a sense, that's kind of like if the bank made a mistake and put. $50,000 into your bank account by accident and then went back to you and said, I'd like that back. And you said, no, I don't think so. I'm going to keep that. Thank you very much. You can't do that. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's, that's exactly it. And I think that um, the move by the group of 14 students that have filed that class action lawsuit this week, really kind of that, that speaks to that frustration that students are clearly feeling. And, and that's kind of grown out of this movement that that we started and and again it can kind of feels a bit off right because at the end of the day these colleges are are public institutions and and we want our public institutions to be providing us with a public service uh but the fact that that we have to fight to say that you know we've kind of we've paid our money and we all have career aspirations and we had plans that that are now in jeopardy career plans that are in jeopardy um and you have you've kind of bound us in this place where we have no choice just before I let you go, do you plan or do you hear from a lot of people who plan to jump into that class action lawsuit and, and be part of it? So, I mean, I've heard uh, a lot of uh, people who, who want one in on that. Um, I personally don't know where I stand yet, but I, I think I've been supportive of students taking action of any kind uh, and, and making themselves heard. I think that in the aftermath of this, this arduous process, once we're back in school, the government CEC and OPSU needs to take a hard look at how students factor into their bargaining process. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. What do you mean? I don't think students factor into their bargaining process at all. I think you guys no, are okay. entirely, as I've used the word before, I think you're entirely collateral damage and you just happen to be there and uh, you guys are the widgets in the factory, but the widgets don't have a say. Exactly, and and that's kind of I, I agree with you. They we don't have a say, in and we're not we're not factored in right now at all. And uh, and I'm hoping, um, like again, like a class action just kind of it feels wrong, right? But but it is I think a good tool to to kind of really <laughs> have some create some change and and do some damage in a way that that forces them to factor us in in the future. Uh, just as I say before, I let you go. Do you do you really think though? that there is going to come a day when something would change or, you know, when this thing's settled and everyone goes back to class and 24 hours later, everyone's breathing again and calm down that we'll just go back until the next strike happens. That's very possible. I mean, we, we don't have a good history of the society of learning from our mistakes. Um, but my hopes are that that, that doesn't happen. And, and if it's not the students necessarily being a part of the process, but uh, but really kind of looking at, well, should there be stipulations for local bargaining? Because one of the big issues in this is that one of the holdups is that 24 colleges across the province with different contexts have been bargaining with one team. And so it kind of creates this issue where the lowest common denominator, the worst issues that, that rise up across the province become provincial issues. Uh, so the whole process is flawed. And, and creating a financial repercussion from the students is a way of saying, You'd better, you'd better ensure that this doesn't happen as often or, or again. Um, so even if it's not students taking an active part in that process, it's more about creating a, a 
a consequence for, for this happening. Amir, Alana, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this again. Yep, no worries. Good luck. Hope it, hope it works out for you because, um, I love chatting with you, but really I'd love to chat about something else for a change. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is uh, Amir Alana. He is the, one of the guys who was behind the online petition to get refunds for college students, which seems like a no-brainer. Seems like an absolute no-brainer. We still don't know where that's going to go, but the number, last I checked, the number was like a, a close to 130, 140,000 people had signed up demanding those refunds. Um, I just... When this whole thing ends at some point, if it ends, and it will, you know, again, the idea that all these people, that all the different sides all say, they all say, we're in this, we're, we're caring for the betterment of the students. We're all about the students. We really care about the students. I'm finding it very hard to find any evidence of any real caring for the students from any corner. Someone, feel free to show me where the students are being put front and center and put first in this. Show me, show me the example of that, and I promise that I will correct myself and say, no, no, that is a group right there. That is the side that is fighting for the students. You know who's fighting for the students? The students. Nobody else. And I said this before on the show, and I'm going to say it again because this thing is going to go on. Everybody involved in this, some more than others, but everybody involved in this should be ashamed of themselves that this is continuing on. And that once again, in our education system, regardless of the level, that we have students being used as pawns and being used as the fulcrum of the seesaw to try and exert pressure on the other side. And nobody gives a rip about them. And don't, don't. Try and pretend you do. They don't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. How are you, sir? Oh, to be honest, Scott, I'm sad today. Why? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, our, I mean, it's no secret what is going on in the television and radio and print business especially in sports and, uh, you know, the changes at CFDO that were announced today that's the, you know, to two longtime sports broadcasters that, you know, many of your listeners would know and Lance Brown and Joe Tilly uh, losing their jobs. It's just a, a, you know, kind of a slap in the face at the changing times in our business. I can't remember a time that they were not there. And that, you know what, that is exactly what my first thought. Those are, you know, building blocks of that station, and and to to think that those guys aren't there, um, and you know, and as you well know, it's it's hard to stay remain relevant in those business, and those guys did throw in Sunil Joshi, and you've got a trifecta, absolutely. Who you know got let go from there? I mean, I guess a year, maybe a year ago, and uh, it's just it's just it's just shocking to me. I mean, you I mean to me, and I will always say this: sports is a very important part of the news. Um, it is maybe a break away from some of the real life stories that go on to the news, but within the sports, and you, I mean, and you do this as well as anyone with your with your work in the Spectator. Um, there's also more outside of you know wins and losses and the and the scores. There are the individuals that need to be covered, and uh, and to see that uh, less and less of that happening on television to me is a sad, sad thing. Yeah, ab- absolutely right. And um, as I say, that those guys, I. 
I'm tr- I mean, I grew up in Toronto. I've been in Hamilton for more than half my life. I've been here for my entire adult life. But I mean, I go back to when I was a kid and those guys were, it seems, maybe I wasn't quite a kid, but a teenager. Right. And those guys were there. That's, uh, that's well, you know what? It's not just that, that, uh, that people are going to be a little bent out of shape about perhaps these days too, because we had the uh, voting or the announcement today for the voting of the Major League Baseball players, uh, uh, most valuable players, Major yes. League Baseball's most yes, valuable yes. players in National League and American League. American League was Jose Altuve, um, which nobody's arguing with that, are they? I mean, he, the the smallest guy in baseball and had the biggest impact. I don't think anyone could argue with that. No, his numbers are phenomenal. And and we saw him in the World Series. A lot of people who don't get to see what he can do all through the season, I think, recognize just what a terrific player. But the guy that didn't win the National League most valuable player is a guy by the name of Joey Votto, who is a Canadian guy who once grew up practicing and playing in Hamilton. He used to, in the wintertime, he used to work out indoors at Redeemer University's gym. He played for the Hamilton Thunderbirds over at Bernie Arbor Stadium. Um, ESPN today refers to him as this generation's Ted Williams. Yep. Uh, doesn't win now. I mean, Giancarlo Stanton, who did had a had a had an enormous year, but um, I, I mean, I was looking at Joey Votto today in, in some of the numbers, and let me ask you: the best, not pitcher. We know Fergie Jenkins is the best Canadian pitcher of all time. No one's going to argue that. But the best Canadian position player ever: Joey Votto, Larry Walker, or Justin Morneau? Who is it? Well, it's going it, when it's all said and done. It's going to be Joey Votto. Um, and I say this with all due respect to those guys that you just named who are just outstanding players. I mean, all three, yeah, all three all have three, won the MVP. You know, just uh, amazing. But I mean, as a complete player, offense, defense, and I mean, what hitting home runs, singles, doubles, driving in runs, runs scored, everything. Joey Votto is the complete package, and I think that comparison to Ted Williams is ju- is is appropriate. Uh, I think he's turning into that. I mean, the only thing that he suffers from, and this is no fault of him, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, and that could be debated, is that he plays in Cincinnati. And the team stinks. And the team stinks. And it's a but small even, market. Even if, but even if the team was good, the fact that he plays in Cincinnati, as opposed to one of the major markets like L.A., like the Dodgers, or any of the two New York teams, I think will hurt, kind of hurts him a little bit, too, in terms of people knowing. It, you know what? I want to raise this little comparison. It was like... It was like Americans not knowing about Roy Halladay really until he became a Philly. Well, even, you know, when Roy Halladay passed away uh, last week, a week and a half ago, so many of the highlights that were shown. Now, he did have those that perfect game in the no-hitter, I understand that, but there were television clips that were shown that showed none of him as a Blue Jay, that, that yep. it was as if he had not really existed until he showed up with the Phillies. He spent 12 years in Toronto and four in Philadelphia. Yep. And there are people who have no idea that he actually pitched before he got into the Phillies uniform. Well, yeah, it's just like, oh, yeah, oh the guy, yeah, the guy that pitched for the Blue Jays for that time. Like, and then he became, you know, beca- but that goes to show you about being in the United States and why some of these guys per- don't come here because you're not really seen on ESPN. And it can be said, and it can be argued. And in top sports, I mean, you know, sites like ESPN and the Sporting News uh, have said this a thousand times, that for five years when he was a Blue Jay, Roy Halladay was the best pitcher in baseball, hands down. But he pitched in Toronto, and you just don't get that recognition. People, 
you know, especially in a time where I think for part of his career there was no interleague play as well, too. So that even cuts down of more cities that he's just not seen in. But you're right. It was interesting to me, and I and I can't take offense to it because we're you know we're talking about a man that you know died tragically. But it was really interesting to see how many of the highlights, as you say, were as a Philly and not as a Blue Jay. Speaking of Joey Votto, uh, now this is of course is put out. Uh, this was a tweet that was put out by the Cincinnati Reds, so it might be picking and choosing what stats, but nonetheless, it's hard not to be impressed with his year. Was the only player in Major League Baseball this year to produce at least 26 home runs, 100 RBI, while hitting at least 300 with a 400 on-base percentage and a 500 slugging percentage. And he was a finalist for the Gold Glove with a 997 fielding percentage. I think he had one error this season. Yeah. Um, it is really, it is amazing. And you know what the other thing is, though? I don't think that people, I don't think people in Canada really appreciate how good Joey Votto is. I really don't. No, absolutely. Because like I said, I mean, he doesn't play for one of the Hollywood teams. And they're not good, as you said, you, you said in combination. So he does go somewhat unnoticed. Uh, the, the baseball fan knows who Joey Votto is. The baseball fan knows I mean, about his numbers and how good he's been and how consistently good he has been. Um, and I will say this, too. This might be a little bit negative as well, too, for... Um, for him in the sense that there have been a couple of clips and highlights of him over the last couple of years maybe showing a side of his over-competitiveness. A little cranky. A little cranky that maybe outweigh the fact that, you know, he's been such a great hitter. And the fact, you know, and, and you know what, and in terms of the, I hate to say this too because baseball, you know, is about being a complete player, but He's a singles, doubles, and you know the odd triples hitter. There was a there was a year I think it was three years ago yeah. that he went through the entire season and did not pop up to the infield once. Yeah, which incredible. is which is if you know anything about baseball that that's almost unfath it is unfathomable. It really yeah. is. That means you're squaring up the ball. Mm-hmm. And you know I love the phrase and it's been used many times. This is certainly not original. If anyone's hearing this for the first time, I don't know where you've been. But the idea that hitting a baseball is the hardest thing in sports because you have to take a round ball, hit it with a round bat, and try and hit it square. And I and it, it really explains why it's so difficult. And for him to never have one, really, one bad swing in a season is just remarkable. What is going to happen, though? And we got to move along. But what is going to happen? Here's, here's my fear with Joey Votto. At some point, Cincinnati is going to look at this and think, we stink. We're in last place. We've got this just absolute gem. We could get something for this guy. We can help to start to rebuild our roster. They're going to trade him, and the trade is going to come only after Joey Votto's performance begins to decline, as every player does. And then he's going to go to a big market, and people are finally going to see him, but they won't see the real Joey Votto. They're going to see the declining Joey Votto go, well, he wasn't that good. Yeah, I... I kind of agree with you, and then part of me says that unter- based on economics, I just don't know how that happens because I'm aware we are two th- we're going into the 2018 season, and it's by my count, I, and I have to go off the top of my head here because I did look at this not all that long ago. 
I believe he may have six or seven more seasons at $25 million a year. Which is a lo- which is a, an astounding, stupid amount of money. But there are teams like the Texas Rangers, like the yes. L.A. Dodgers, yes. like the New yes. York Yankees, where yes. money doesn't mean anything. It's it, it just, got... it just, it just that it cuts it down in terms of who you can yes. trade with. Um, 100%. But there know, are teams. There, I mean, there are teams, yeah. The Los Angeles Dodgers, they have a local TV deal worth something like $250 million a year. Before they sell a ticket, before they sell a baseball cap, before they sell a hot dog or a beer, they have $250 million in their account. That allows you to go and sign some guys that no other team is going to be able to go and sign. Well, think about it. The Dodgers are the first team in professional sports, and that includes Europe. To surpass the three hundred million dollar a year uh, salary uh, threshold, uh, that 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 is unbelievable to me. Three hundred million dollars. Uh, that's a few shekels. That is uh, <laughs> that is not an ins- a small amount. All right, I want to move on to something else quickly. Okay. We've got about uh, we got a few minutes here. Some people in in this area are going to many people. Hopefully, are going to know the name R.J. Barrett. Some won't. R.J. Barrett is the most prodigious basketball prospect to come from this country since Andrew Wiggins and maybe even beyond Andrew Wiggins. He is considered the top high school player in the world right now, the best. So he decides, he makes a big announcement. Uh, Frankly, he did the uh, LeBron James thing with the announcement, which I thought was just a bad decision to start with. Surely everybody who watched LeBron James do that decision should have learned, yeah, you know what, try and tone it down a little bit. Don't make your, but anyway, he did. And he chose to go to Duke University for his what is likely to be one year of basketball. Here's my issue with this, Bubba. It's not that I don't like Duke. Whatever happened to the days when somebody who was a star player said, you know what, I don't want to go to the best team. I want to go to a team that I can help make an impact and do something special with. This, this to me, seems like he is just jumping on the easy bandwagon to try and win a title and not to have an impact on a team that he could help build. Yeah, I, I I get that for the pros there, Scott, but not for that not for that level of what you're going to. You want to go to where there's a top level team to have your name hyped up. This is a business too, right? I mean, the, especially for the one and done, right? This is you are now a brand, and it starts now, and that's why you're seeing you know Canadians who now represent other than Americans the most amount of players in the NBA. Um, which is amazing to me, considering what's happened over the last 15 to 20 years. I mean, uh, Murray did the same thing. Uh, Wiggins did the same thing with the, you know, the uh, this sort of introduction on where I'm going on TSN. And what has happened? The, the that sports network has started showing the, all of their ball games just so that you know you, we can catch and watch the Canadian content. So that's the building of the brand. On top of that, too, going to Duke arguably puts you with arguably the greatest college coach in history and, and the coach and with the kid. most difficult name to spell in college coach <laughs> that, in history still to this day i've said it a thousand times and still have never spelled it right once no and mike krzyzewski so uh, so going there i thought was a real good decision and it's a good school too it's a good school good area great coach uh you're going to be playing with some of the top players and top recruits across the country a country so that can only make you better as well i would love to see one time a player, because you know what? If you are the top player coming out of high school, and if you're presumably going to be the top player coming out of basketball, that means you're going to be the first, second, third draft pick overall. Your future is going to be building a team. 
because you're going to go to a bad team that gets the first pick in the lottery mm-hmm. in the draft. I would like to see one of those guys say, you know what, I'm going to East Boogaloo State that's never won an March Madness tournament game, and I'm going to prove what I can do when I am the guy who has to be the guy. I I understand that maybe I'm dreaming in Technicolor that nobody is ever going to do that and say I, I'm going to risk not winning a championship, but... You know, the Kevin Durant thing of jumping to the best team in the league and this. David, that's a pro. So I, that's know, a, that's I know, I know, no, no. I, I, I will totally agree with you at that level, but uh, you're dreaming in Technicolor. Yes, you're dreaming in HD. Like, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not going to happen at that call at that level because, I, like I'm saying, you are already building your brand, and you need to be at one of those top schools, whether it be Kentucky, Kansas, uh, you know, I know. Game. It, I know. That's where you got to go. I got to go there. I just hate it. I just hate it because I, I just believe that you should. You know, it drove me nuts when Roger Clemens joined the New York Yankees to get on the fast track to win a championship. Again, the pros. I understand it completely, but right. to me, it always seems like there should be an asterisk beside your name if you win a championship and you've just jumped on board the fast train to happiness. Yeah. Anyway, well, at the end of the day, those guys who pick those top schools, and you know, and, and as I said, if they're one and done, or they go the full four years, if they're that good, they're going to end up being on the last place team anyway. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll spend their time losing down the road. Yeah. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope they got to get some character burned into them by losing a few games, and then they can appreciate the winning when it finally comes. What I really hope is that we see, because this, this, we have the potential right now, what's happening right now, and, and the depth is becoming a, a, a more of a factor now, is that our Canadian national basketball team is going to make some serious noise. In six in the, years? In, 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 maybe even three. Well, maybe, but in, in by the 2000, and what are we looking at here? The Olympics are 2018, so 2020, 2024 at the latest. Yep. We should have a really good team. Really? Well, that, I'm talking medal contention. Unless, unless Gary Bettman jumps to the NBA and says, pros are not going to the Olympics. <laughs> Stop it, no! And then we're going to sit here and go, oh, now we get to have... Some men's pickup league team oh, from the no. Y. <laughs> that may happen. You know, who knows what'll happen? But yeah, they'll do that. If it looks like Canada's going to win the gold medal, the pros are out. They're never going to. The U.S. is going to say, "Yeah, we're we're out." NBA yeah, isn't just going. Just like they robbed the Expos. Bubba O'Neill, always love having you. Thanks for doing this, sir. Always a pleasure, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Michael and Lauer would like to. Begin the process of building a new arena in this city, smaller than First Ontario Centre, probably in the sixty to one hundred million dollar range, five to ten thousand seats. Uh, the reason, couple reasons. One of them is that First Ontario Centre is now getting quite elderly, starting to have some issues. Uh, it's costing money, and also, you know, it may be too big for the kind of hockey that we have here. Well, the question is, he can he he has proposed that he has been public with that. Will this? He's going to need to have support. Unless he decides to do this 100% himself, he's going to need to have counsel at some point jump on board because what he has said is he will go 50-50 with counsel. Whatever money they'll spend, he'll spend equal. But he's going to need counsel. Is counsel going to be interested in beginning this discussion? Well, first up tonight, joining me, uh, Ward 4 Counselor Sam Marula. Uh, Sam, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, my pleasure. 
Your initial reaction when you hear this, do you get the sense that if somebody on council or somebody, Michael Anlau or someone else, was to bring forward a motion to discuss this, do you get a sense among the table, around the table that there would be an appetite to have this discussion? I'd have to honestly say no. I think at this point we're just not in a position financially to entertain uh, spending money for entertainment. So we have an arena. We're trying to make the best of what was ultimately, I guess in hindsight, a bad decision. And um, at present, our focus really is trying to enhance our economic development, focusing on our $3 billion infrastructure deficit and roads, sewers, sidewalks. And these issues are at the forefront. And anytime we as a governing body, and everything's based on inputs and outputs and governance, and we have to be able to decipher what is a priority. And at this point, I don't consider an arena a priority. And I'm, I think I speak on behalf of the majority of the city when I say that. People want good government, and they want a frugal government, and only spending money where it's necessary, or where at least that type of money can have a return on its investment, as opposed to potentially a subsidy attached to it. So I look at the, the opportunity, and I say, if he's asking for cash, I don't. It's a non-starter. If he's asking for something in kind, such as land, uh, where there isn't a capital financial contribution, then I'm willing to talk about it. But as a business person, and he's a good business person, he probably has more money than the city does when you break it down <laughs> liabilities and assets. Um, he he comes forward and he wants to put a proposal together, and he doesn't ask for money, but he asks for other in kind type of contributions. Uh, then I'm all ears. Um, but if he's asking for money, um, I, I, it's not a good business decision for us to do that. The one thing that makes this, I think, and I think a lot of people, I'm not going to lie to you, I think a lot of people would probably nod their heads and say, you know what, Uh, I'm on board with that. But the one thing that makes this a slightly more complicated decision, I would think, is the fact that First Ontario Centre is getting up there in years and the maintenance and the repairs, I mean, there was a, a, a... transformer blue or a transformer fire in the basement today in the hydro room. Um, it does cost some money to keep that place going now. And presumably as buildings get older and older, people who have an old house know this, it will cost more money. The city can't let first Ontario center just fall apart. So money is going to be sent. So how do you balance the idea of maintaining an old building and putting a little more money or maybe a lot more money into an upfront capital expense to build a new building that wouldn't have those same ongoing expenses. Yeah, no different than your own household, right? So if you have an existing house and you know it needs repairs, you're going to continue repairing that house until you get enough money to buy a new house. You're not going to go out and actually purchase a new house when you can't afford to do that. And that's the position that we're in presently. Um, and when you deduce it down to that level, people understand that. But one thing I must say is that if he can put together a proposal where he's not ask, asking for for cash. The land that Cobbs Coliseum sits on presently is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. So that contribution onto itself is massive. Now, as a good businessman that he is, and I know he is a good business person, he can put a proposal together that could be multi-use, could be, could be residential, commercial, and include an arena. No different than what they did with the old Maple Leaf Gardens, where it's a hybrid, a commercial and, and, and arena then I'm all ears. Just don't ask for money because we don't have it to give. So the idea of what you're proposing sounds very much like what happened in Toronto with Maple Leaf Gardens, now the Mattamy Centre with the Montreal Forum. They did something similar. 
you talk about how valuable that land is. If if he or someone else was to come forward and say, "Look, I'll build a, I'll re, I'll tear that whole thing down and I'll build a seven thousand seat arena, and it'll also have a convention center and whatever else," you would be at least All open to the. You'd be open to that discussion. Absolutely, as long as he's not asking for money. Even if it was on that valuable a piece of land. Absolutely, absolutely. If you can make, if you can actually enhance and actually create revenue from taxation to different types of uh, use on that site, it's in our best interest. At present, that valuable land is not uh, creating any revenue in taxation because we own it. So if he can come forward with a proposal with mixed use and inclusive of a, an arena, that's a good business decision for us and him, and we can move forward. I'd be more than willing to, to entertain that. It is. Uh, it, that's an interesting position. I, um, I I appreciate you offering that one up, uh, Councillor Sam Marula. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. It is. Uh, look, that, that there's now. Here's the thing. Before I continue on, building an arena from scratch, even if it was part of that development, um, it's it's a very expensive proposition. And while Councillor Marula was halfway joking about the fact that Michael Landlauer has money. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. You heard him on the show last night uh, when I asked about could you do it yourself or would you do it yourself or find just private partnerships. That's a, that is a big nut. Now, if, would that change if the city was going to give an incredibly valuable piece of property and says, hey, knock yourself out, build whatever you want to build here. As long as you put the rink in here and you want to have condos going up and you want to have a convention center and you want to find all these other things that are ancillary developments around this area, would would that interest Michael Allen? That, that would be an interesting thing to ask, and we certainly will be. Uh, on the other side, maybe not on the other side, but certainly another counselor who... Um, has an opinion on this. Donna Skelly of Ward 7. Now, when this first was brought up a few days ago, one of the locations possibly that a new arena might be built in was on the mountain somewhere on the central mountain. That would fall into Donna Skelly's ward. Uh, she joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this tonight. No problem. Nice to be with you. I mean, we just heard from Sam Marula, and he is reluctant at best under most circumstances. If money is involved from the city, he is very reluctant to open this Pandora's box and sort of go down this road. What do you think? If a, if, if a owner of a sports team says, I'm willing to match dollar for dollar what a city could come up with, what do you take that to mean? What would you do with that? Well, I don't think we should close the doors right now. I think it's important that we have a very open and transparent conversation and process moving forward. When someone as reputable as uh, Mr. Adlauer comes to the table and says he's interested in pursuing something along this line and is willing to put uh, money and invest money into the project, a lot of money into the project, we simply can't say there is absolutely no appetite for it. There is no appetite, and I do agree there's no appetite for an NHL team and an NHL size arena, but that's not what Mr. Andlauer is um, suggesting. And I don't think it's really what the city of Hamilton could support at this point. I do, however, think if, if we can't just leave the uh, First Ontario uh, place the way it is, it's going to require millions of dollars in upgrades, and renovations, and I'm not sure why we would want to put that kind of money into a facility that is simply uh, 
not the right fit. It, we didn't land an NHL team. I think that ship has sailed, and I think that message is very clear. But I do believe that the city desperately or, or must have some sort of a, a sports facility in the thousands of seats size. So 7,500 seats is a, is a good size, I'd say, for Hamilton. Not only for sports, but also for attracting concerts. And I would uh, love to sit down and pursue the conversation with Mr. Lauer and anyone else who wants to bring money to the table. I asked the same question of Councillor Marula a moment ago, but that what makes this tricky for, for a city, and we all understand about the infrastructure deficit and the, the tight budgets and everything else, but you've alluded to it. It's going to cost money one way or another, whether it's upkeep or whether it's capital expense. And how do you end up around the table? How do you end up making the decision about whether it's a better decision to continue to spend and to try and keep the place going or to put a little more or maybe a lot more out there and build a new place that won't have those ongoing repair fees? Well, first of all, it can't be a discussion simply around the table. We must uh, engage our residents. This would be their arena. This would be their sports facility. This would be their project. Yes, we would have, obviously, uh, money in, in, you know, that we would have to, whether it's land or money or, or something would have to be um, at the table. But we can't do this as councillors separate from engaging the general public. This is their, this will be their arena. This is their team. This will be their arena. Uh, I don't think that we can continue to throw money at the former Coliseum First Ontario Centre. It just does not make sense. And at one point, we have to say, what are we going to do with this facility? Are we going to shut it down? Are we going to pump $80 million or whatever they're talking about to uh, bring it up to the, the um, uh, level, it, the standard it would need in order to attract a facility, a, a team? What team would even consider coming to Hamilton? It's a very big, big arena. And unless it's a managed franchise, I don't know why uh, we don't need um, an arena that large. So do we continue to spend money at an arena that's now, you know, 30 years old? Or do we simply say, look, it's time to level the building, sell the land, invest, you know, attract somebody new, generate revenue from the taxes that it would, uh, it would bring in and look for another facility? I think that's certainly an option. But again, this can't be done in isolation of, of our residents. Do you get the sense, though, now you were not there on council for the stadium debate. You covered it as a journalist. You're very aware of how this thing all played, but you were not around the table absorbing the uh, the shrapnel that everyone else was. Do you get the sense that your colleagues around council, after that debate, which was so angry and so divisive, and then the subsequent LRT debate, which was only marginally less so, that there's a lot of people who are just really skittish and say, oh, please don't make me decide on another big project right now. Absolutely, they're gun-shy. Look what happened with LRT. End of discussion. <laughs> I mean, we saw people flipping at the last minute. Yes, they are gun-shy, and unfortunately, uh, you know, there won't be a lot of appetite to spend a lot of money, but we can't ignore the fact that this arena is outdated. It needs millions of dollars in repairs. And we have an opportunity to pursue a different projects. Uh, we have an opportunity to perhaps um, have an, a whole new uh, venture. We cannot simply say, no, not interested in that discussion right now. That, I don't think, is, is the reasonable or the, the proper response. It's, 
uh, we owe it to our residents and to the taxpayers to just sit down and say, what are the options? Let's just explore it. We're not going to commit to anything, but we must have this discussion. Uh, last thing, and I know what your answer to this is already, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless because I, I think there's more to it than the simple yes or no. Uh, there are some who believe that if a, a new arena was to be built, if this thing was entertained, if a discussion was had, if something was to go ahead, that it must be done in the downtown core. There are others who say, no, 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 it, 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 there are other places it should be. I know what you think on this. I know you believe that at least a consideration should be given to the mountain. Why would you say what you say? Or, or what would be the answer to that? Again, I think you can't, uh, you can't make that decision right now and exclude any part of the city until you look at the options. We don't know the size of the facility. We don't know the demographic that the uh, team wants to attract. We don't know what other um, possibilities there are for repurposing the space that we have right now that First Ontario Centre sits on. I think it's way, 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 way too early to exclude any other part of the city and say it simply must remain in the downtown core. Hamilton is not just the downtown core. The downtown core is thriving right now. And there are a number of of options that we could uh, explore for that particular space. It could be a sports facility, but it doesn't have to be a sports facility. And it doesn't mean that we can't look at other parts of the city. Ancaster, Stony Creek, my my area, the the Central Mountain. I think that there are all good opportunities and, and good arguments to be made that at least look at what is available where could an arena be built that would uh, that would work, not just for residents in the downtown core, but for people right across the city? I love the fact that Hamilton is booming, and I think we've done some uh, wonderful things. We've done some things right. I do believe the stadium's in the wrong spot, but that you know, again, unfortunately, that's a decision that was made, and and that's where it is. I don't think we need to make that you know that mistake again. I think we really do have to look at all options and not shut the door on this possibility. I think it's a win-win. I don't believe that um, that that the arena can continue to exist the way it is, and that now is the time to at least explore options right across the city. Councillor Donna Skelly, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It is uh, well. There you go. There's two different points of view. And you want to know something? I bet if we had every city councillor on here and over the next number of months, who knows, we may, I bet you would hear every different point of view as well. I mean, I am, I, I, I'll be honest. I am intrigued by councillor Marula's suggestion. And of course it's one councillor's position. There may be many others who would disagree, but his suggestion that, Hey, let's, you know, Michael Anlauer wants to have that lot where Cops Coliseum is sitting right now, or First Ontario Centre, at the corner of Bay and York. You want to have that piece of property and do whatever you want with it? That could be, that is a very interesting proposition. There would be other councillors, I'm guessing, I don't know this, I'm guessing though there might be other councillors who say, wait a second, um, that's a really, really valuable piece of property we might be better to allow an arena to be built elsewhere, sell that land to someone who is going to develop condos or something else, take the money we earn from that sale and the taxes from whatever they build, and we might be actually ahead of the game 
if we have to put in, even if we have to put in 20 or $30 million of capital expenses into an arena. I mean, these are early days for these kind of explorations, but they're, it's not uninteresting. It is, there is a lot of stuff here uh, that is to chew on. There are a lot of ideas. And, you know, one of the interesting things too is whenever you launch a discussion like this, which Michael Andlauer has done, you are going to have an awful lot of people while the, and while the canvas is still clean. An awful lot of people are going to have interesting ideas. Now, ultimately, there are two ideas probably that will matter more than any. One of them would be Michael Andlauer since he's going to put in half the money for it and it's his team and, and certainly he's going to have a significant say if this was ever to happen. And city council. But, you know, I was on with Scott Thompson this afternoon talking on his show and here here's the, here's the part about this that kind of makes me feel defeated. I don't know whether this discussion is ever going to start. I don't. I don't know if it's going to come in front of city council and they are going to do with it what they did with the Commonwealth Games bid. Remember, it was not that long ago, sometime in the summer, that the option to make a bid to host the 2030 Commonwealth Games came in front of council. I think that discussion lasted about seven seconds. There was just no interest in walking down that road at all. But let us say that the council starts thinking about this and says, you know, We've got to pay X million of dollars to keep cops, I keep calling it cops, first Ontario Centre operating. Or, and let's say over the next 20 years, that's $20 million. It's actually more than that. But let's say, let's say over the next 10 years, that's $20 million. Or we could put 30 or maybe 40 into a brand new arena. We wouldn't have that expense. Even if that discussion started to happen, and I don't know if it will, do you not get the sense after everything that's happened, all the big discussions we've had in this city for the last number of years, that even if you got from point A to point B to say, we're going to talk about building an arena, do you not get the sense that when you go from point B to point C, which is where are we going to build the arena, all things are going to fall apart. Mayhem will ensue. Armageddon will descend upon us because Half the people will say it absolutely, unquestionably must be in the downtown core or it's a non-starter. And the other half of the people will say, we don't want it in the downtown core. The people who buy tickets for hockey games or for a lot of concerts or whatever else are the people who live up on the mountain in Ancaster, Dundas, Stony Creek, Flamborough, the mountain, and getting to an arena right off the link potential, let's say at Lime Ridge Mall in that area, that boy, that would make a lot more sense. And we could redevelop that spot downtown. As soon as the idea of where comes up, I just fear that this whole thing devolves into a huge argument. It happened with the stadium. There wasn't really an argument that we needed a stadium. It was all about where is the stadium going to go? And it happened with LRT. There was more of an argument about where, whether we needed an LRT, but when it was, who was the argument between? Well, much of it was between those in the suburbs and on the mountain who said, I'll never use it. And those downtown saying, I'll always use it. Even if we can get from A to B, B to C is the part that is going to be a real 
real challenge. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.